The separation of powers represents a fundamental principle underlying our governmental framework. As James Madison wrote in Federalist 27, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. To keep such tyranny at bay, the framers created three separate, co-equal branches of government. The legislative branch to create the laws, the judicial branch to interpret the laws, and the executive branch to enforce the laws. Over the past four decades, federal administrative agencies have taken on aspects of all three governmental branches. Part of the executive branch, agencies are primarily tasked with enforcing statutory regimes. However, they take on legislative and judicial functions when they create regulations to fill in the gaps and ambiguities in the applicable statutes. Given the framers' concerns about centralized power, this blurring of constitutional lines presents no small threat to our constitutional system of governance. The expansion of the administrative state has magnified the problem, first during FDR's New Deal, and next during LBJ's Great Society and subsequent regimes enacted in the 1970s. But how did so many unelected agencies in the executive branch come to dominate American life and business in such a profound manner? One source of the expansion is the Supreme Court's 1984 decision in Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. In Chevron, the court set up a two-step process for evaluating an agency's construction of a statute. First, if the statute is unambiguous, courts will give effect to its plain language. Second, if a statute is silent or ambiguous as to a specific issue, the question is whether the agency's interpretation is based on a permissible construction of the statute. This second step, known as Chevron deference, has been criticized by courts and commentators for violating separation of powers by abdicating legislative and judicial power to the executive branch. This term, the Supreme Court is poised to reevaluate the vitality of Chevron. The vehicle for this reevaluation will be a 2020 rule promulgated by the National Marine Fisheries Council. The rule requires Atlantic herring fishermen to pay the salaries of onboard monitors to conduct studies and collect data about fisheries during their fishing trips. The fishing industry challenged the rule as going beyond the scope of the applicable statute. A D.C. federal court upheld the rule. Over a strong dissent, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed, and the Supreme Court granted certiorari. Will the court restore the Founders' vision of separation of powers? Or will administrative agencies continue to present an exception to this basic constitutional principle? This is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo.
Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Burnkoff. Today, we welcome back the incomparable Ben Robbins, the brilliant senior attorney at New England Legal Foundation. He filed an amicus brief in support of the fishermen in this case. Great to see you, Ben. Thanks for joining. My pleasure, Bob. Great to see you, too. So administrative agencies are creatures of statute, and under the case law, they possess only the authority that Congress empowers them with, generally. In this statute in question, Congress empowered the agency to allow these onboard federal monitors, and specifically, the language in the statute authorized the agency to, quote, require that one or more observers be carried on board a vessel for the purpose of collecting data. Now, that language doesn't say that the agency can require the fishermen to pay for those observers, to pay their salaries. But many of the very smart judges down in D.C. who've looked at this language have at least found some kind of an ambiguity or in omission, at least for purposes of that second step of, of the Chevron case. And so that gets me to my first question. And it's really about this distinction between ambiguity and omission. And it, this, I'm trying to set the stage for, for my next question. And so I'm wondering, when it comes to ambiguity and omission in statutes, A, what's the difference? And B, in non-agency contexts, how do courts typically address statutory ambiguities and omissions? Okay, that, th those are great questions. I just wanted to clarify something. I think that's very important for our listeners to comprehend. This case only involves Chevron step one. That is the threshold step when a court looks at an administrative statute to make the first determination whether or not the agency regulation is authorized has Congress, if you will, created a gap, an ambiguity for the agency to fill. That's step one, and that's all that is at issue here. So this case does not involve step two, which arguably is the more controversial of the two steps. That is almost this automatic deference. Once there is a genuine ambiguity recognized by a court, then it's, it's sort of hands off the agency regulation. Although reasonableness is still a, a standard of review. So, so again, just to clarify, this is only involving Chevron step one. I just want to make that point really clear. And, and something else that, that a remark you made in your introduction, I just want to take issue with, and this will, I will answer your question. I promise. Justice Stevens running for unanimous court, I think two or three of the justices did not participate in the decision, Chevron 1984 decision. Running for unanimous court made it clear throughout the opinion and even in comments after the opinion was issued that he was nearly summarizing the court's established, if you will, common law approach, which is also consistent with Marbury v. Madison in Article 3. A court will look at any statute, administrative or non-administrative, and try to, of course, determine what its meaning is. It used to be framed as the intent of Congress now in the pure textualist approach. It's what does the text mean? What does it tell us? And of course, it's only the text that we care about. Of course, you know, with some background norms, we interpret it. 
but it's the text that has gone through, if you will, bicameralism and then presented to the president for approval. So that's all we have as a court and as as judiciary and of course as as a, the the legal community to 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 work with. And so Justice Stevens, I argue, and this is the effort I, I, I sort of undertook in my brief, was merely attempting to summarize what was already established by the court in its own practice. And to answer your question now, if this were a, if you will, a, a, a non-administrative statute, a statute that does not involve any delegation of powers to an administrative agency, a court would, as it always does, in even with, of course, administrative statutes, look at the plain language, ask itself, what does this mean? It's particularly the language that, as it was understood at the time of the enactment of the statute, and to the extent there's an uh, purported ambiguity, apply traditional rules of interpretation, look at that language in its context, apply rules that would help to clarify or resolve an ambiguity. And in the non-administrative context, if a court is still sort of scratching its head after legitimately sort of rolling up its sleeves and engaging in a bona fide analysis of a statute to resolve a, if you will, a facial ambiguity and still can't really nail it down. What did Congress mean? As we know, and it's no mystery, and I think you you in part touch on this in your introduction, language, uh, statutory language, as in any other linguistic context, cannot capture all possibilities. Either they, they could not have been anticipated at the time of the enactment of a statute or language has its limits. Even if you have a known universe of all, if you will, possible applications of a particular statutory term or phrase or test, you can't possibly, unlike, a, let's say, a Napoleonic code, you can't list all the iterations, all the applications. Okay, so a court looking at a statute that does not involve an administrative agency would then have to take the next step and if the, if you will, traditional rules within the four corners, so to speak, of a statute or any necessary background norms that could be applied uh, all under those traditional rules of statutory inter interpretation still is sort of scratching its head legitimately. Gee, I can't resolve this gap. There's, there's a hole here. There's a definitional lacuna that has to be filled. And of course, a court can't just give up and say, well, I'm, I'm going to have to wait for Congress to tell us what it really meant. Of course not. A court will then Turn to other means, of course, courts vary in their approaches, typically the purpose, the underlying purpose, the policies that Congress often expressly announces or at least impliedly is trying to serve, advance, to facilitate. What are the broad policies or purposes of the statute that might help resolve an ambiguity? Or we know that it's still a controversial, remains a controversial issue turning to legislative history. We know that the late Justice Scalia did not approve that. And I understand, you know, there are two sides to that, but to the extent that there might be pieces of, a leg of legislative his history that could shed some light on a, what I would call, and what Justice Kagan recently called in an opinion related to this doctrine, a genuine ambiguity under step one, a court in a non-administrative statute would have to resolve that ambiguity. The problem here, of course, is we have an administrative statute. And I tried to address this in my, amicus brief in a footnote where I tried to understand why Justice Stevens went out of his way with very, I argue, unnecessary misleading language that has created for the past 30 years the unnecessary confusion under step one. We know that in, in footnote nine of Chevron, the court states the traditional rule, uh, all the classic 
rules of interpretation, you know, that judiciary is the final authority on issues of statutory construction. Of course, that's consistent with Article 3, Marbury v. Madison, and with the Administrative Procedure Act, which codifies, back in 1946, it codified what the court had already been doing for many decades. And then he goes on to say, again, this is footnote nine to Chevron, if a court employing traditional tools of statutory construction ascertains that Congress has had an intention on the precise question it issued, that intention is the law must be given effect. Now, I would quibble in our modern or postmodern view about intention is sort of the meaning that's all we really care about and also clear, clear versus just intent. But the point is, he gets it right in footnote nine. And yet in the body that surrounds that footnote, he has this really unhappy language that has created the confusion about, gee, does, does every purported silence or omission on the face of the statute create a genuine ambiguity that means hands off, we can't, we can't interfere with the administrative agency and its, its regulatory powers in filling that purported ambiguity? You know, the court, I'll just be, I won't read the entire thing, but the court uses language such as this. First, first, as always, step one is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. And then again, if, however, the court determines Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court, okay, then ellipsis, if the statute is silent or ambiguous, okay, this sets in motion a very unhappy decades-long confusion, which clearly Justice Stevens, at least I gleaned from, from the context of this decision, he was responding to the D.C. Circuit, then Judge Ginsburg writing for the appellate panel from the D.C. Circuit in the Chevron decision itself. And in her decision, she concedes that there is a gap in this technical term involved under the Clean Air Act, the term was stationary source of pollutants and how you apply that to this partic the particular state non-compliance concern, state non-compliance program at issue. And she acknowledges, gee, there's a gap here. Congress has not told us enough to answer the question, how do we define that term as applied to this program? And the consequences were significant. So what she does is she arguably, at least according to the court Chevron, oversteps her role as a court in the context of interpreting an administrative statute, because what she does is she acknowledges a genuine ambiguity, but she doesn't leave it alone. She doesn't then turn to the regulation and ask, is this a reasonable interpretation of that in unclearly defined or incompletely defined statutory term of art? What she does is, she arguably steps in, in, into the shoes of the agency itself, in, this ca in that case, the EPA, to say, well, I'm gonna turn to the purpose of the statute and I'm gonna use the purpose of the statute to resolve this ambiguity. And the way that the EPA then under the new Reagan administration has interpreted this ambiguity, she concludes is inappropriate. It does not serve the purpose of the statute. It, in her view, it contravenes the purpose of the statute. So what she was doing, arguably, going to your question, was interpreting a statute as if there were no agency involved. And so what Justice Stevens was, in using this unnecessary and over-emphatic language about has Congress literally clearly addressed what he's trying, I think, to do is send the message to, in this case, the DC Circuit, but of course to all you know, lower federal courts in the nation, when you're faced with an administrative statute, 
and you encounter what we now call, Justice Kagan called, a genuine ambiguity, your role is not then to resolve the ambiguity on your own by, let's say, turning to the purpose, legislative history, these other, if you will, extra textual means to resolve an ambiguity. Rather, ask yourself, has the agency within the permissible bounds of its delegated powers to promulgate rules, has it interpreted that or resolved that, that genuine ambiguity within the realm of reasonableness? And that's really all that he's trying to say. But the language he uses here is so misleading and so inappropriate that has created the confusion now, including in the lower court of DC Circuit opinion, this very case, Loper Bright. Oh, so we take it to mean that when we're interpreting administrative statute, Congress has to go out of its way to tell the agency, thou shalt not regulate. And if the agency, if Congress has not done that, it's at its own peril. If it has, quote unquote, failed to preclude the agency from, from regulating, then the agency has almost these implied plenary powers. Of course, that, that's not what the court intended. That's not what the Constitution has in mind at all. And, but that's indeed how the D.C. Circuit in this very case was taken into, if you will, the other extreme. You have just then Judge Ginsburg stepping arguably into, into the shoes well, of the well, agency. Before we get there, Ben, let me, let me just chime in because I, I think you've hit the, the nub of, of my question. Uh, okay. But I want to make sure I understand it. Because when I was looking at this, you know, it, it, it struck me that there's a difference between an ambiguity and an omission. An omission could certainly trigger an ambiguity, but I don't think an omission in and of itself necessarily means that there's an ambiguity in the statute. Now, I understand right. where, there's, where there's ambiguity you you might need to rely on some canons of interpretation and including perhaps some some agency deference in this context but at to your point just so i understand what i think you're saying is the mistake here in chevron was to include omission sort of on its own as its own principle if the statute doesn't specifically prohibit something or specifically command something then that leaves a gap that the agency can simply fill in. And then the mm -hmm. courts are powerless, essentially, to reverse course or um, yeah. utilize it, their step. Right, go ahead. That I'm sorry. Go. Unless under step two, which we know is not before the court, but unless under step two, gee, that's an unreasonable stretch, you know, assuming there's a genuine ambiguity. But to, to answer you, I th you're absolutely right in what you're, what, what you're if you will, defining here, delineating by, by, by your, I think, well-chosen well words. This is what I'm getting at. And I think we're on, we're reaching the same conclusion. Justice Stevens inappropriately for the court, unanimous court for those who participated, equates the term silence with ambiguity. And I address this in the brief, that is wrong as a linguistic matter, as a legal matter, as a matter of interpretation. And this is, I think, precisely what you're saying too. We all can recognize that a statute might present an ambiguity, but an omission, a purported silence, a purported lacuna on the face of the statute does not necessarily yield an ambiguity. It's up to a court, as we know from footnote nine in Chevron, as we know from Article three, as we know from the Administrative Procedure Act and the court's own practice for the past several decades, including after Chevron, that under step one, as with any other non-administrative statute, we look at a purported omission as we would, would, would look at a, if you will, a positive term that is an actual 
piece of language in the statute. We ask ourselves in the text and in the context of that purported omission, can we sort of, if you will, resolve that purported ambiguity? Can we disambiguate that silence? And of course here, it's readily, readily disposed of. It's an, this is an easy case as you properly identified in your introduction. We have a very clear term that has no ambiguity about it. You must carry on board these federal observers during your fish, your commercial fishing trips. Nowhere does that mention anything about, oh, and by the way, you have to pay their daily wages. And nowhere does the ordinary meaning of the term carry on board include payment of wages. We all know that. And so to the extent that a court, such as the DC Circuit here would ask itself, well, gee, it, but it doesn't say that you can't, but wait a minute. Now you look at the rest of the statute where Congress has gone out of its way in very detailed and narrow and well-articulated other provisions to map out when the agency, when the government can require or consider shifting the costs onto the private, the fishing industry itself to pay those daily wages. We know that Congress has done that in other provisions of this larger Magnuson-Stevens Act. It hasn't done in this statute, in this particular provision at, at, at issue, the classic rule of construction, the, the inclusion of language there and its omission in a related section must mean that was a deliberate, this purported omission was a deliberate policy, policy choice by Congress not to authorize the government to shift costs onto the industry to pay those daily wages of the federal observers. That is, Congress has made it clear if you apply the traditional tools of construction unencumbered by a misunderstanding of Chevron step one and that unhappy language that I read from the body of the statute, you would readily conclude, oh, okay, Congress is making it clear in, in the body of the statute that paying the daily wage is not somehow an implied cost of complying with this express statutory uh, obligation, or rather an obligation that government can impose to, to carry on board these federal observers. It's not a cost of compliance to pay their daily wages, in addition to, if you will, quartering them, housing them, allowing them, of course, to, if it's a, a long, several, you know, sleep there, eat the food, use the facilities, whatever, you know, that's quartering, that's accommodating, that's, of course, carrying someone on board. Those are implied costs, one would concede, I think. But beyond that, daily wages are not part of, part of that ordinary term to carry on board, nor did Congress intend that somehow there's an opening here that the agency can play with, if you will, because it goes out of its way in these other provisions to allow or even to require such payment of wages for federal observers. So it must mean that Congress deliberately chose not to do that here. So that should have resolved the issue readily in favor of the fisher, fisher people, mostly fishermen, I guess. But the point is that that language in Chevron creates this unnecessary confusion when Justice Stevens refers to a silence and an ambiguity in the same breath as if one were interchangeable with other or not. And ambiguity is sort of the end result a court concludes after engaging with the statute, applying the rules of construction, and deciding that there are at least two reasonable ways of interpreting such and such a phrase, or in some cases, such and such omission, such, such and such a silence. Okay, but in this case, there is no room left to interpret that it can only mean that Congress chose to limit 
agency powers in the provision we're talking about because it did not include any reference to, by the way, government, you can also choose to impose the cost, the daily wages, the cost of paying the daily wages onto the fishing, the, the fishing vessels. Nowhere does, does Congress say that here. It said that elsewhere, deliberate omission. So it was Justice Stevens, I think, again, I think in his effort to control at the time, a DC circuit that apparently in not just this case, but other cases had the practice, if you will, of apparently stepping into the shoes of an agency when faced with an administrative statute and deciding that's not how we would have interpreted such and such a genuine ambiguity. We think that the purpose and the history point to something else. Again, I know this goes to step two, but we all can recognize that reasonableness means that if the agency is delegated powers by Congress, in this case, to promulgate rules, legislative type powers, which by the way, have been recognized for, for many, many, if not decades, at least sent, you know, going back almost to the beginning of, 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 of the constitution, our, our, our constitution that it's always been recognized that yes, the agency can be delegated powers. Congress doesn't have the resources and the time to fill all the details. That's, it's been sort of well-established for many, many, many decades preceding Chevron, no question about that. But his justice, I'm not trying to use him as a whipping boy, and of course he's not here to defend himself. But again, I think Justice Stevens was in his good faith effort to control a DC circuit that at the time was arguably overturning invalidating agency regulations beyond the scope of, let's call it a reasonable deference standard, used language that in this case, going to your question, unfortunately and inaccurately equated a silence or your, as you use, omission with an ambiguity. An omission may be ambigu ambiguous and may not be. In this case, I don't think it is. And I don't think it's a close question. And I think that again, if this is what I suggest the court do, that the court go back and sort of sanitize or, 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 or in, if you will, disclaim any independent validity to some of this unnecessary language that has created all this confusion that it should just be, if a statute is ambiguous, it, it, silence can be ambiguous, it may not be, but that's not, a, that's not a synonym in all cases for ambiguity, nor should it have been used that way, nor should the DC circuit in this case have been thinking about it. But to understand the DC circuit in this case, to stand in its shoes for a second, it's faced with this language in Chevron. In its own view, it was in good faith trying to give if you will, validity to or apply what it thought was the instruction that the court in Chevron was giving it under so-called step one. And what seems to have been created by this unfortunate language and now the practice of the DC circuit, I would say principally because of course it hears most many agency appeals under the APA, it has now a life of its own that is Footnote nine, which states all the truth we need to know about how a court has to independently engage with the statute, apply rules of construction, look at the ordinary meaning and ask itself, is there a genuine ambiguity? And if there is, has the agency reasonably, if you will, resolve that ambiguity under its delegated rulemaking powers? That's footnote nine. The DC circuit here paying so much attention to the unhappy language, what I call the unnecessary language, has, if you will, created this Emperor's new clothes, the emperor's, you know, the, the, the famous, the, 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 the myth of the emperor's new clothes that 
there, there's nothing, this, this is, if you will, naked language that just says you, you, you may be required to carry on board a federal observer. Nowhere does the ordinary meaning or the, if the text or context suggest anything beyond quartering. That's in fact what the same, the Congress uses the term quartering a few sentences later in that very same provision to quarter and to po- accommodate that federal observer during a fishing voyage. But this seems to create the, the notion that under Chevron, misunderstanding of the Chevron step one language that, oh, well, if Congress doesn't say that the government can't require the fishing industry to pay, pay, for, pay the daily wages, then that must mean that Congress has allowed the agency to consider whether or not to impose such a requirement. Congress hasn't precluded them from doing it. And that, of course, stands everything on its head. And it's not what Chevron ever had in mind. But that's how the DT circuit, I do think, has interpreted Chevron. And that's what this court, that is the Supreme Court now, has to clarify. And I think it can. And I don't think it's a hard, if you will, task to, to do. Well, let me let me jump in there because I think we're we're in agreement that, you know, it really doesn't make sense in any statutory interpretation context to just simply look at an omission and automatically assume it creates some ambiguity. And and everything you just explained makes perfect sense along those lines. My my question for you is bigger picture wise, let's assume that the court does make that clarification to Chevron, that step two really only applies after courts having gone through their statutory analysis and interpretive devices, they still come up with a, you know, this is a painfully ambiguous statute. We have no idea what it means. And so we get to step two in an appropriate scenario. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what, what is a court to do? What's, what do you think should Chevron just be discarded altogether or is there room, you know, cause wait, just give you a little insight into what I'm thinking. You know, I'm, I'm constantly dealing with contract litigation. And of course, in, when you're dealing with ambiguous language in contracts, which come up all the time, what you end up doing is you end up putting the people on the stand that drafted the, the contract. And then the court can decide this is what the parties intended or, or what they meant. Obviously, you can't do that with a statute. So it, is there a utility for Chevron that, you know, it's so long as step one is clarified, is there some vitality, I, I should say, for step two, in your opinion? I see. Well, First of all, I don't know whether the court need or will reach that question, but I do think to be fair or may, perhaps to apply a generous reading of, of Chevron and what I do think were Justice Stevens' intentions at the time, step two adheres to the notion that Congress presumptively or impliedly has not answered all the questions in a particular statutory scheme and also has delegated to the relevant federal agency rulemaking powers, going through, of course, the notice and comment period for due process type vetting, you know, of of issues. And so in that sense, deference 
is due to a reasonable interpretation of a genuine ambiguity. Or let's say in this case, if this were a genuine silence that simply suggests at least two reasonable interpretations. And if Congress has decided, as it has, let's say in this statute and other administrative statutes, that agencies shall administer a statute, they shall have express rulemaking powers through the necessary process, then Congress has deferred to the presumptive expertise of an agency in that an agency, unlike Congress, is focused on just this particular universe of issues, let's say under the Magnuson-Stevens, the, the statute question here, commercial fisheries in the United States, how to regulate those fisheries, whether it be the catch load, the equipment used, the standards, the throwback, the, the concern about throwing, returning insufficient catch size, all the, the, the if you will, the, the minutiae and, and necessary minutiae and components of that industry are under the delegated authority of this agency, which then develops its expertise, has fact-finding, assuming it has a sufficient, sufficient budget, has fact-finding capabilities that Congress itself wouldn't have the time to do, to gather facts, to engage in that kind of process, to develop detailed regulations, to address statutory mandates or statutory directives that have, let's assume, legitimate legitimate gaps to be filled. And Congress has chosen that that particular agency will, sh shall have the authority to fill those, that gap. If I could just, to answer this all in, an, in another way, if I can just point the, the viewer or the, the, the listener's uh, attention to Justice Kagan issued a very helpful opinion on these very issues in 2019 in the decision Kaiser v. Wilkie, which granted was under, under the related doctrine of what's called our deference, not our as O-U-R, but A-U-E-R, our deference, when, whether or not and when to defer to an agency's interpretation of a, of a purported ambiguous regulation. Granted, there are differences here and there, but the point is she invokes Chevron at least twice in the course of her analysis. And she gives a very helpful blow-by-blow -blow account of why it's important to, in that context, salvage that doctrine, but clarify that doctrine. And that was very much a salve for me because in my own independent research, I was coming to the same conclusions that I then discovered in her 2019 opinion for the court in Kaiser v. Wilkie. And there's also a wonderful dissent for, from the denial of cert by Justice Gorsuch in a case, again, involving a Chevron challenge, a, a challenge to an agency regulation under Chevron step one. That buffing Yes. And, and, and the buffing decision, again, I came across that Again, independent, I was engaged in my own independent research and I came across both Kaiser v. Wilkie and then his buffings in dissent, his dissent to denial of certain. I was very pleased to see that two justices, arguably from two sides of, an, of the aisle, I, I, I don't want to speak in political terms when I think that sometimes justices see, see the issues in very much the same light. I think that justices Kagan and Gorsuch have a very similar approach and 
arguably would apply that approach in this very case to salvage Chevron, not to overrule Chevron, to clarify step one. And also, again, I turn to Kaiser V. Wilkie to, to address some of you, you know, your question about, well, let's assume there's a legitimate ambiguity. It's, and here there is. And I don't think the court should conclude that. I don't think the court would. It should end at so-called step one, a clarification of step one. There is no room to play with the language about carrying on board. There's no reasonable way to interpret that other than one irreducible way. That is, it, it does not, especially in the context of the larger statute, there's no room to inject the, 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 the uh, shifting the wages onto the fishing industry. But step two in this related doctrine of our deference is addressed also by Justice Kagan in, in that opinion. She does, I think, a very masterful job in talking about how it applies here, I think, in some in, in very strong ways. When Congress has made a decision, a policy decision, okay, we have this very, if you will, reticulated, very busy statute with a lot of components and terms that we don't, we Congress don't have the resources or time, or if you will, the foresight to define, let the agency engage in that fact-finding, let the agency and its, its experience and expertise apply the, these statutory terms, develop regulations, go through the notice and comment process and, and resolve legitimate, legitimate ambiguities, legitimate gaps with its rulemaking powers. And also, of course, it has its adjudicatory powers as well. In a more limited context, of course, that's case by case. But the, I think in some ways when it worked well, when an agency, whether it be here, whether it be the SEC, the EPA, whatever agency it may be, when it exercises its powers and promulgate in response to a legitimate ambiguity and generates a reasonable set of, or reasonable regulation set of regulations, then it has uniformly resolved something on a nationwide basis. There can still be legal challenges to, of course, in a case, in a, a one or more cases, there can be challenges to the validity, legitimacy of such and such a regulation. But the point is, Assuming for a second that you have a legitimate ambiguity under step one, and then you have a reasonable regulation, reasonable promulgation of reasonable regulation to resolve that ambiguity, then you have a uniform answer as opposed to a piecemeal adjudication case by case by a court, DC circuit, first circuit, in this case, for example, which, okay, granted, this is, um, we do have the regulation on the books and the question is the validity of the regulation, but assuming for a second, you don't have, you have an opening, a legitimate opening in a statute. You don't want courts in a piecemeal fashion, uh, courts that may not have any idea about the, this a technical term about the particular industry in question, whether it be securities, whether it be in this case, the fish, commercial fisheries, whether it be very, very specific environmental issues. You have these very often technical or specific issues in which courts, Congress has, if you already decided, courts aren't necessarily better equipped to resolve ambiguities when it involves technical terms, particular industries, very busy and layered issues. So when, it, when the system worked well, when you have a legitimate ambiguity, that is a genuine, what Justice Kagan calls a genuine ambiguity, that is a court engaging in 
its necessary threshold role, rolling up its sleeves, looking at a statute, whether it be an omission or a particular term that's at issue, you know, in dispute in a particular case, decides, you know, I think there are two or more ways of looking at this omission or term and resolving that in a reasonable way. And that's when the agency's role steps in. And then, of course, what, what Justice Kagan points out in Kaiser v. Wilkin, which is very interesting, I think, which could apply to your question about step two here, when there's a genuine ambiguity, it's not a waste of the court's time. The court has, of course, look, that's the court's necessary threshold role. Article three, the APA, Marbury v. Madison, they all say this, if you will, the same thing. A court has to decide in the first instance what a statute means. means. It used to be talked about as intent. I think it's now more in the textualist approach. What does the statute mean? Gee, there, I can't pin this down. There are at least two legitimate way, reasonable ways to interpret such and such a term or, or omission. Okay, well, that's when the agency steps in and plays its, its legitimate role. And it's not a waste of the court's time that the court has engaged in that analysis and come up with the conclusion because the court, if you will, has arguably defined the universe of reasonableness. Because the court, in determining that there's a genuine ambiguity, has arguably identified two or sometimes more than two, but let's, it has to be, of course, we know at least two reasonable ways to resolve such and such a term or omission, silence, if you will. And so in the sense, the court has defined in that role, and it's that threshold gatekeeping role, has defined the scope of reasonableness. And if an agency strays from that scope and interprets, promulgates a regulation, Inter interpreting that genuine ambiguity and goes too far, goes outside the scope of what a court would deem to be reasonable, then that's a case under step two where step two has teeth and a court would, would be able to invalidate the regulation under step two. So step two of Chevron should not be seen as an automatic deference that automatically we must, if you will, genuflect to an agency regulation when we, when we deem, we, we find a genuine ambiguity or genuine, if you will, silence. There still is room for court to say that the agency has gone too far. Now, I know not, that not every justice on the court would agree with what I've just said. For example, I believe that Justice Kavanaugh or maybe Justice Thomas as well, and maybe even Justice Alito would disagree even with that approach to deferring to an agency that the court, I arguably Justice Kavanaugh might say, no, it's still a court's role even under step two, so-called step two, to play the role and ask, well, how would I reasonably resolve that ambiguity? Ah, has the agency, what ha, have they done what I've done? I don't know if I, I might be taking that too far. I don't want to speak beyond what my knowledge, but not. I, I do think a majority of the justices would see it the way I try to approach in my brief for, for New England Legal Foundation in this case. I think Justice Kagan and Court Gorsuch fascinating on often on opposite sides of an issue, but here I do think they do share a similar view on how, in this case, Chevron Step One should be clarified, and Chevron the whole apparatus should be salvaged and not not overruled. Well articulated as always, Ben. Uh, why don't you give Nelf a plug and remind the listeners where to find you guys? Sure, listeners who are interested. To learn more about our mission and, and the cases we get involved with at New England, can check out our website at newenglandlegal.org. And if they choose, they, they can read about, they can read some, the briefs are posted there, briefs that have been filed and case, if you will, docket summaries, what we call our, our dockets, 
And they could also choose to support NELS by making contributions within their means, of course. Well, you know, we're big supporters here. So great job again on this amicus brief, Ben, and thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be able to share my views of this important case. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.